Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? This is the word of the Lord. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So before we get started, I want to give a, a, a very, very brief bibliography. Um, I, Alan will tell you, I love preparing for sermons probably more than I love giving them. I get kind of nervous giving them, but preparing for sermons is a lot of fun. And um, a lot of the work that I used in preparing for this particular sermon comes from a guy named Warren Carter, Um, He wrote a book on Pontius Pilate that is really, really helpful. And I didn't actually read this book, but it's going to fit in perfectly, I can tell. It's called The Upside-Down Kingdom by Donald Craybill. So if anybody has interest in kind of looking into some of this stuff more fully, those are two good starting points. Now, tonight, we have sung a lot of songs, and I I put them on Matt, so thank you for cooperating. Um, We sung a lot of songs tonight naming... Jesus as king, to the point that it, it almost kind of becomes comical. Here is our king, all creatures of our God and king, a kingdom and a king. We put another song up on the Facebook wall that just kind of takes that title and flip-flops it. It's called A King and a Kingdom. Um, we tossed around ideas about songs like Sing to the King. And this morning in worship, I got to lead the congregation in the song Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. When it came time to pick songs for this Christ the King Sunday, the task was difficult not for lack of relevant songs, but just for this unusual overabundance of them. Um, Our ever-growing family songbook in the church really kind of milks this King language for Jesus. It's, It's not really without precedence, though. The, um, the synoptic gospels throughout, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus can't really seem to stop talking about this thing that he calls the kingdom of God, or Matthew's version, the kingdom of heaven. And tonight in our passage from John's gospel, the response that Jesus gives to Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews, is clear, even if it is not direct. In verse 36, you probably noticed, Jesus uses the words, my kingdom, three times. There is no ambiguity in the gospel accounts. Jesus Christ is a king. But 
king of what? And where, if not in this world, and to what degree does this supposed kingdom of his really exist? Now, many of us know the Jesus story well enough to remember the inscription that in only a few hours after this scene takes place, will be hung on the cross with Jesus as he is publicly executed by the Roman kingdom. It will read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The inscription, according to John, is written in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin to ensure that anyone who walks by, who just happens by the the cross, will get the message loud and clear. This man, Jesus, who was hailed as a king, who preached a kingdom over and above Rome, has been proven inferior, has been publicly mocked and made an example of, and has been effectively removed from the scene so that he can't cause any more trouble for the Roman status quo. Just over 2,000 years later, here we sit, celebrating Christ the King Sunday, and our lectionary passage from John's Gospel won't let it sneak by without reminding us that whenever we declare that Jesus is King, we join our voices with this ironic statement of the Roman governor who looked truth in the eye, scoffed at its absurdity, and then nailed it to a cross and hoisted it up for everyone to see. Pontius Pilate's statement to the world is clear. Truth is whatever Rome says it is, and Caesar is king. Now, a long history of Christian uh, anti-Semitism has has tried very hard to exonerate Pilate of any kind of final responsibility for Jesus' death in order to place it more squarely upon the shoulders of the Jews, and John talks about the Jews a lot in, in this gospel. But we're not going to let Pilate off the hook quite that easily this, morning, uh, this evening. As governor, Pontius Pilate is the only one who has power over life and death in all of Judea. And he mocks the Jewish elites when he says, Crucify him yourself. You can almost hear the sarcastic follow-up. Oh, yeah. You can't do that without me, can you? He's known by Jews and Romans alike as a harsh unyielding man, and while it's true that Jesus' main opponents in the gospel are the Jewish authorities, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, these people aren't opponents of the gospel because of their ethnic or religious identity. They're opponents of the gospel because they have willingly cast themselves as citizens of the wrong kingdom and as subjects of the wrong king. They have cooperated and even conspired with Pilate, the local manifestation of Roman rule, so that they might be counted among the 10-ish percent of Judean elite, whose abundance feeds off of the exploitation of the remaining 90% of this population. And though it is by no means equal, the prestigious Jews, the leaders of the temple, and the Roman officials have a mutually beneficial relationship. The prestigious Jews keep their peasants in order, and the Roman officials keep the temple leaders in this kind of small but elite class. 
So in light of all of that, we can look at the Roman socioeconomic structure and we can look at the Jewish temple system and we can say both of these are really shining examples of kingdoms that are of this world. In worldly kingdoms, a relatively small number of people obtain power by conquering or exploiting larger numbers of people. And if we look back from this time in history, from the time where Rome is the world power, we can think of Persia and of Babylon and of Assyria and of Egypt. And all of these have place in the biblical narrative. And what's common to all of these is that they are all kingdoms who took over, who the Jews were held under. Worldly kingdoms employ warfare and insider politics to gain and to maintain themselves. And justice in these kingdoms has a tendency to kind of lean in favor of those at the top and against those at the bottom. These worldly kingdom characteristics ring true, really, from middle school hallways all the way up through business and office politics and on to national and international affairs and policymaking. Powerful nations still, to this day, colonize less powerful nations because they can. When jobs are tight, we all know that the phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know, is true, even if it doesn't seem fair. And whether we want to admit it or not, the uh, star high school athletes who break the rules are usually treated by their high school administrators a little bit differently than are the poor kids from broken homes who might act out because they have no other way of telling the world that they aren't satisfied with the hand they have been dealt. Now, these are all generalizations, sure, but they're not exceptions. We all see them. And they're not overly sophisticated. It's just kind of the world that we live in. This is how humans operate. And it's because this is how humans operate that we kind of find ourselves in a predicament. Jesus looks Pilate in the eye and he says, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Now this is interesting, because if you did happen to read the context... We're going to do a little quiz. Um, Even if you didn't read the context this morning, you might know the story well enough of Jesus' arrest. When Jesus is being arrested, what does Peter do? He draws his sword, right? Peter draws his sword and he strikes the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, Jesus rebukes him, sure, but we learn something about even the most highly honored disciple In that scene, while Jesus' kingdom might be from some other world, Peter proves himself to be no different than me, or you, or Pilate. Peter is from this world. He had been a fisherman, and so Peter is certainly on the bottom of Roman society, but he finds himself caught up in this little alternative kingdom, and as a part of this kingdom, for the first time in his life, maybe he feels important to something or to someone, maybe to God. And yet it appears that Peter understands and abides by the power structures of this world just as clearly and as faithfully as does Pilate, who is on the opposite end of the social 
and the economic structure. So when Peter's beloved kind of alt-kingdom is threatened by the impending arrest of its king, Jesus, he does what I imagine that I would do. He fights. He fights to maintain the life that he knows and loves, to maintain the kingdom in which he is known and loved. But when Jesus tells him to put the sword away, and he allows himself to be arrested, Peter not only gives up the fight, he gives up the whole kingdom. And in just a few verses, we'll see him standing with the Roman guards, the Roman soldiers, warming himself by their fire. And the gospel makes it really clear that we see this. It says it twice in the narrative. And three times in about ten verses or so, Peter denies having ever known the man they call Jesus. For Peter, Jesus' kingdom is great until it isn't. For Pilate, Jesus' kingdom is tolerable until it's great. For Jesus, though, this alternative kingdom requires a different set of categories altogether. We can't make sense of Jesus' kingdom with language that we use to describe the kingdoms of this world, with languages, uh, language of greatness and of power, of justice, of security, even kingship. All of these things have to be rethought in terms of what Jesus calls truth, the truth to which he is going to testify. You say that I'm a king. I can take that title or leave it. For this I was born. For this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Call it a king if you want. Everyone who belongs to truth listens to my voice. And so we're left with Pilate's question. What is truth? Where is this truth that you're speaking of going to get me? Because I can tell you what, if this truth of yours doesn't sound quite Roman enough, I can tell you where it's going to get you. Pilate doesn't wait for an answer. Even as he is beginning to become convinced, it would seem, that Jesus might actually be who all these people say that he is. The most powerful man in Judea simply isn't interested in an alternative kingdom. He's doing pretty well in this one. Thank you very much. The story will go on to tell us that as Pilate kind of learns a little bit more about Jesus, um, that he becomes scared when he, when he hears someone say that Jesus is the Son of God. It says Pilate became very afraid. And scared though he may be, confused and conflicted though he may be, when it comes down to it, Pilate will do his duty to his king and to his kingdom. Just as the prestigious Jews did when they handed Jesus over and accused him Not of blasphemy, but of treason, a crime against Caesar, not against God. Just as Peter did when he denied ever knowing Jesus and willingly reverts back to the kind of status quo of the ruling worldly kingdom called Rome, Pilate will put down the alternative kingdom. He will crucify the alternative king, and all of this will be done quite publicly in order to to reestablish in the minds of anyone who for even a second thought otherwise that truth is whatever Rome says it is and that Caesar is king. Pilate's job is to maintain the truth 
and the authority of Rome. That's what a Roman governor does. We can hardly blame him for doing it effectively. What Pilate could never have seen coming, though, is this subversive power that kind of comes with the territory of nailing truth to a cross and hoisting it up for the world to see. The very act of violence employed for the maintenance of a worldly kingdom becomes the act of subversion by which all of the kingdoms and all of the powers of this world are exposed. And suddenly, as Jesus hangs on the cross, Rome is characterized not by its power and its justice and its security, but by fear of its perceived competition, by an insecurity so great that in the service of self-preservation, Rome will knowingly pervert one of its greatest virtues, justice, torturing and murdering an innocent man who refuses to repay violence with violence, and who refuses to acknowledge as truth this worldly claim that some people are simply more valuable than others. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, hangs in irony on a cross, dying from a lie and yet testifying to the truth that there is a different way, that true life in this world of power and of prestige is found only when we first learn to die with our king and to die for our king, the one who died for us, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the truth. Amen.